there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. The National Young Writers Festival is really unique because we're all young people creating and curating for other young people. We wanted this festival to be interactive. We wanted people to happen across other people that they maybe had never met before, never thought to meet before, and that's sort of the playfulness of it. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the National Young Writers Festival, supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales, with Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session of the National Young Writers Festival is one of their very special late night readings. This one is a celebration of our Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander artists and writers. Nothing about us without us. The late night readings is where our community is and it really is where people get to know each other because it's so late at night and it's quite an intimate setting even though there's a hundred people in the room like you talk to five ten fifteen people across the night and we have three of them on across the festival it's just so unique to our festival and it's so important to our festival and our community and i think that that's what makes it like a continuing force Hi, um, my name's Rayleigh Lancaster. I'm the creative producer of this year's festival. Um, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Awabakal and Waramai people who are the traditional custodians of this land. I pay respects to the elders, past and present, as well as to any people here today with a connection to the world's oldest continuing culture. Um, So tonight's reading is called Nothing About Us Without Us, and I am so incredibly happy to have... such a brilliant line up of young uh, young indigenous creatives and I'm just I just feel so happy and I just love everyone and this is just beautiful um yeah um okay so I am going to read everyone's bios now and then they'll just come up, read their work and, yeah, that would be it. Okay, so first up is Malaika Gaysa Patafehi is a proud black indigenous Pacifica and West Asian Writer. Their mob is from Murray Mer Island, from the Zagreb and Dorab tribes. Next up, um, we will have Morgo. Um, Morgo is a student, media fanatic, and angry black dude. 
Morgo is afraid of being serious. Um, then we'll have Mary Hannah Salem, a Lebanese indigenous writer seeking the sweet spot at the intersection of pop culture, enjoyment, criticism and activism. Enoch Mailangi is a 22-year-old Indigenous and Polynesian TV writer and text-based artist from Sydney. Evelyn Araluen is a poet, researcher and educator and the coordinator of Black Rhymes Aboriginal Poetry Night. And Nathan Mujis-Sentence is a Wiradjuri man who grew up on Tarkinjung country, New South Wales. Nathan works to ensure the first nation's stories in cultural and memory institutions such as libraries, galleries, archives and museums are being told and controlled by First Nations people. And then because I'm a writer with an ego, um, I have programmed myself on this event. Um, And I am Rayleigh, um, a poet, producer, research assistant, other things, um, and I like words and writing and artists and, yeah. So, um, without further uh, ado, um, our first reader will pop up and share her words. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Hello. Oh, hi. Hi. Um, I feel like this is very tall and like my ego matches it. No. Um, <laughs> hi, everyone. I, I'm going to talk about myself a little bit before um, I'm going to start my... I'm going to share two poems tonight. Um, basically, the first one I shared this afternoon, if you weren't there, um, you're going to be blessed twice. I'm sorry if um, you reached your blessing quota and you don't win the lottery today or <laughs> any day. Um, I'm sorry. Um, and then the next one, I want to preface trigger warning for um, police brutality um, and for my other like mob at the front, just um, yeah, losing another black follower and cousins and whatnot. Um, but yeah, hi everyone. My name is Malaika. I am from Brisbane. I grew up in the Torres Strait. I am, again, from Murray Island. Does anyone know who Eddie Marbo is? That's one of my grandfathers. Hi. Um, I'm pretty proud of my family um, and being a part of an island like that has basically, you know, shaped how I look at the world and how I, you know, exist within it. Um, I am one of nine. How amazing. Um, I have, yeah, nine siblings. Oh, wait, no, I'm not a sibling to myself. Um <laughs> But yeah, there's nine of us. Um, my older brother is amazing. Um, and I have younger siblings who are pretty amazing too, I guess. 
Um, but yeah, I have a I have a five month year old sister, um, and I've been away from her f- for like two days, um, and that's the biggest gap. No, it's not the biggest gap, but for me right now, it's like the biggest like longest time I've been away from her. And I'm probably gonna video call her after this because she loves me to death. I actually, I, I'm her little entertainer. I dance for her. Um, and if you don't know, black people dance. Um, <laughs> and um, I also have a tongue in vada, so we go hard out too much. Um, so yeah, I love my siblings. I am basically family orientated. Um, I am currently a student at UQ. Um, which is in Brisbane, obviously. Um, no, I travel to Newcastle all the time for my university. Um, but yeah, I am studying to become a secondary education teacher um, and I'm majoring in criminology and sociology. Um, so I'm probably like the best secondary education teacher in the world, um, if you have me, for the young ones in the crowd, if there are any. Um, if there aren't, let's make some. No, <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, but yeah, I am... I'm a very happy person. I'm sorry if I make you cry tonight. We can hug it out later on. Like, we can do, like, a group hug if you want. Um, if you don't want to, it's okay. Um, my feelings won't be hurt. Maybe. Um, <laughs> um, what else is there about me? I, I don't know. Um, I like writing, obviously. Um, and I am actually very new to poetry. I am a fiction writer. Um, black people have always been um, storytellers, so I think that's always been my thing. A storyteller, whatever. It has always been me, um, which is why I was always like weirded out at people giving me the writer like label or the storyteller label because I've always had that label. <laughs> um, and I just want to preface that I kind of have a different relationship with the label writer because like... English is not my first language, and spelling is colonial. Like, um, <laughs> you, can't, you can't get me on that, just saying. Um, but yeah, the first poem that I want to share with you was one that I shared this afternoon. Um, it's called Call Me By My Name. I want to share, like, one story about it. It's basically my, my father had a dream about my name bef- the day before I was born. Um, and basically, he dreamt about me in the arms of my mother and my older brother trying to take me away from her. Um, And basically he called out, don't touch her, that's Malika. Um, And he talks about like the old gods and the ocean. And it's a very beautiful story when he tells it, when I tell it, I'm just like, yeah, it's about me. Um, Yeah, I'm the only one who's ever been dreamed of. Yeah, everyone's had to like go through the process of, oh yeah, I like that name. Um, But me, I'm special. Um, but yeah, first home. Are you ready, guys? Yes. <clears throat> my name was my name before I walked among the living, before I could breathe, before I had lungs to fill, before my great-grandmother passed and everyone was left to grieve. My name was birthed from a dream a whisper from gods to a king, a shout into the stars that produced another that shone as bright. They held me without being burnt, humming lullabies and pigeon. My name was passed down from my ancestors. They acknowledged my roots grew into 
grew in two places. So they ripped my name from the ocean and mixed it into the bloodlines of my totems. My name has survived the birthing of worlds. It has been licked by fire, escaped the overwhelmed jaw of the deathbringer many a times. It has survived the conflicts that resulted in my gods in both lands knowing me as kin, but noticing that I am painfully unrecognizable and lost. They are incapable of understanding the foreign tongue that was forced upon me. My name has, has escaped cyclones and their daughters. It has been blessed by the dead as they mix dirt, salt, and liquid red into my flesh. My name is the definition of resilience. It is a warrior that manifested because of warriors. So, excuse me, as I roll my eyes or sigh as you mispronounce my name over and over again, or when you give me another that dishonors my mothers and father, that doesn't acknowledge my lineage to my island home, or the sense of rainforest and ocean foam, you will not stand here on stolen land and whitewash my name. For it is two words intertwined as powerful as a hurricane. Say it right or don't say it at all. For I am Meleika. I will answer when you call. Thank you. Um, and the next one, um, again, preface to my fellow black people, Yoza, um, that's going to be triggering. Um, but yeah, I'm here for the ride with y'all. Black man walking, black man walking, black fella walking. In this colonial world, this is synonymous with dead man walking. We are dead men walking with targets on our backs, and ain't nobody in power want to spit those bloody facts. Every week I'm invited to a funeral, and every week I wonder, will this be like my funeral? Will my nan scream to the old gods and the new? Will my siblings cry in anguish about the brutality of the blue? Will my mother cut her hair and braid it into mine so when I pass to the deadlands, I can cross that spirit line knowing she's with me and I'll, I'll be completely fine? Will my father wear the same black shirt and pants for weeks on end? Will he sit in the family chair and wait for me to come home like a childhood friend? Will he leave his clothes unwashed so my scent is still on him? Will he sing to me after recalling my birth like it was a hymn? Will my grandfather hang around the station and plead for justice? The officers will look at him littered with smacks and sigh. Oh, it just is. Or your baby died and it isn't our fault. You can't keep blaming the white man by default. How convenient that white man is synonymous with police. And, I think, and when I think of them, all I think of is black bodies or deceased. 
We be out here being incarcerated from light skin to light skin to melanin saturated. They be taking black lives like that shit ain't complicated because truth be told it ain't. This system ain't fucking great. Dying young has always seemed like fate. Imagine turning 15 years old and thinking that's halfway. Imagine losing so many people that you forget that they were alive, that you thought you made up friends since you were bloody five. And when you remember them, and when you remember them, all you can do is yell, all you can do is cry. All you can do is beg for answers on why they'd have to die. My throat aches from screaming so loud to people who can't hear me. My jaw dislocates from unlearning silence, repeating cries like it's history. My mouth is disobedient and refuses to consume dirt. My tongue flays in foreign and it never is unhurt. We mourn the dead. We mourn the living. We mourn with our eyes wide open while our bodies are buried and burnt. Thank you. I'm pretty shot. <clears throat> hey, I'm Morgo. Um, this is a piece that I'm working on right now. It's not really finished, but um, I want to do a pretty broad content warning. Um, I'm definitely going to engage with some colonial ideals and like some racism, like, or mention it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, anyway. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is called um, Haunted Countries. When I was 15, my father's friend took me skiing. We drove on winding roads from Linz all the way down to the border, dipping in and out of Italy and then back up to Tyrol. Our fourth hour in the car, we swung around a corner and suddenly rows of ice triangles stretched out across a blue horizon. We don't have mountains like that here. Everything in Australia is so aged and weathered that instead we just have these great craggy masses, giant dinosaurs of rock. My American friend, while exploring the forest surrounding my Tasmanian home, told me that our patch of the, prehistoric, uh, the Pacific feels ancient, almost prehistoric. I get the sense that the land here has seen something and that she's trying to tell me about it, he said. I think Australia is haunted. Of course it is. It's so obvious in the country where the spirits shift the seas and the tops of the trees. You can feel them in the air around you. I was lost when I moved to Melbourne. I remember standing outside in the rain, everything smelling of piss and cigs, thinking, it's crazy how in denial you have to be to live here. Trash in the street, crowded trams, the biggest gathering of psychopaths I've ever seen. Everyone's depressed. <laughs> it wasn't the first time I'd lived alone, and it wasn't the first time I'd lived in a city, but something felt wrong. I longed for the countryside where I'd grown up, felt suffocated by all the concrete. But living in Singapore had been fine. Vienna was fine. Why did Melbourne feel so cold? Last summer, I drove to the Grampians with my ex. We packed tents and food for four days, and walked five hours along the sandy path that turned first to rubble and then to rock. A pair of emu ran across our tree line, out from the tree line and across our path before disappearing again. Bush chickens scuttled in and out of sight. Our silence was punctured by the hollow echo of mountain goats bashing their horns together. While I walked, I wept. There were tiny orange and purple wildflowers dancing at the edges of the track, 
and I didn't know why I couldn't stop crying. It was here, sitting on top of the naked rock, sitting naked on top of the rock, with my ancestors crawling around me and sleeping at my feet, that I realized I hadn't been able to feel them in the city, that they weren't allowed to float so freely there. In Tasmania, they were lost shadows seeking something to cling to, long grass waving as you drove by. I realized that in Melbourne, I had missed them. Eventually, I found them in the city too, just took a little more listening. From Burke Street to Brunswick Road, on the corner of Punt or Rayleigh, messages left between the cracks in the concrete, ancestors growing up through crevices as piss yellow grass or sitting atop the telegraph pole, black crow crying, why can't you see me, why can't you see me, why can't you, why can't you see me? Then there are different kinds of hauntings too. Ghosts of colonizers settled into the bones of my Wurundjeri grandmother, stolen from her family and brainwashed by the white fellas, my Wurundjeri grandmother who says, Morgan, we would have nothing if the white people didn't come here. Morgan, we were running around like savages killing each other before. And would you rather be eating bugs and dirt for dinner, huh? The angry voicemails left by my mother, father. Why am I wasting my time? Why am I so angry? Why won't I come with them to watch the fireworks on Australia Day? Splitting white guilt, grief, sunk into the skin of my brother, who thinks Aboriginal is just a box we tick on a form at school, thinks Aboriginal is just dollar signs sent to our bank accounts by the government, thinks it's a funny joke to leave Instagram comments on my pictures. Dirty fucking abo. These hauntings inescapable. These you can't close your ears and ignore. Land where all the abos died. Hung on eucalypts like Christmas lights. Gone but alive in our hearts or gone and forgotten. All existing somewhere on a spectrum of loss. <sighs> I sleep outside and my ancestors send me dreams. I fly over sheets of wattle trees, thick yellow, filled with birds and bugs, and below that people dance or sleep or run barefoot. It's invasion day and our white allies hurt for us, hurt beside us, sit down and look up at us and listen to us and be silent and recognize our power and our rightful place, and all of it feels like hope. But there is a risk in this. Scaffolding rises quickly around me. Daydreams like this come more frequently, slip closer towards me, and I think, stop it, snap out of it but I can't help but create this small universe of hope. Entire landscapes rise up and melt around me in seconds that feel like small hours, the kind that people have to wake you from, startling you. The kind that white people wake me from with their persistent ignorance and their stereotypes, their whispering in my ear of what isn't isn't Aboriginal, as if some patchwork of stereotype can contain a complex cultural flame framework, as if an ingrained image is enough to detect the nuance of family and community. Aboriginal culture has the secrets to all our, has all the secrets to our natural world, not this hologram we live in. But what does it all mean for someone like me? Someone untethered, someone raised by grandmother, stolen generation, mother, adamant we're white. No connection to culture, wandering around looking for my family, lost. Am I really Aboriginal? Do I really have that stake to claim? I didn't grow up on my country, never hunted, never gathered, and so much of this reconnecting to culture is a solitary act. So much of the no not knowing is tied to shame, makes me afraid to call on those who belong to me. I don't know all the ways yet, so much to learn yet, and I think, no, I would be happier if only I could force myself free from this colony-inflicted embarrassment. There is an eternity of work to be done in decolonizing my mind, body, and spirit. I want desperately to identify with my history, but I don't know how. 
Want desperately to shake the ghosts out from my skin, but I don't feel like I'm allowed. What does it all mean for someone like me? Only the ones like me know what it means to be the ones like me. But then I start to figure it out. Then I walk with naked feet across sacred land, undressed beside the fire. Rondry people, we have a deep connection to the land. We know that each tree and each rock has its own spirit. Each river, forest, clearing has a spirit. I lie tender in the grass or on sand and learn the native words. Promise to give my children Wurundjeri names. Eating native plants feels like cleansing, feels like redemption, like I am baptized by the fruit. I start having dreams that predict the future, sense there's some sort of magic inside of me and then realize, of course I'm magic, of course. <laughs> Do you know what it feels like to walk around the world and know you, in, you are intrinsically attuned to some higher power? Reconnecting with my culture has changed me, who I am, how I love myself. This intuition, this knowing, this Aboriginal consciousness, I never knew how much of me was missing until I found it. There's a permanence. Ties unbroken, can't be broken. Deep roots, core roots. I say this to me and the dirt on my floor. I am a lone wallaby, mud arching from long, bounding toes. I burst from the fern, across the clearing, and away, away. Everybody, uh, can we just have another like round of applause for Morgo, please? Because that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that was beautiful, and that was a great jumping-off point for me, I guess. Um, so, hello, my name is Mariana. Um, I'm a Wanneroo woman. Uh, my grandfather was um, Les Elvin. He uh, he died three years ago, um, but he was a NADOC Artist of the Year. Um, he was just a generally amazing guy. He just went around teaching culture to everybody because that's just what he believed in, what he valued. My mum uh, works her butt off in um, Indigenous communities, giving um, medical help with the nurse practitioning work. She won an award. She's like the best nurse practitioner ever or something like that. Um, she's, she's just amazing. So, um, yes, I have a lot of strong Indigenous um, people in my family and I'm incredibly proud of that. Um, but I personally have always struggled with my own indigeneity, um, very much struggled um, with being made up of all these different pieces. The, you know, I... I'm made up of the colonised and the coloniser and, you know, my family were all... A big part of my family were also migrants to this country and ultimately benefited from that colonisation. So I've, I've always struggled with where I actually sit in all of that. But I've always felt, you know, as a white-passing Indigenous person, um, I've always felt my job, and I, I'm a teacher as well, is um, I just feel like I need to uplift um, people, use my platform to uplift... Um, other amazing black men, women, non-binary folk. Um, I've just always felt that that's my duty. And so that's why today I thought I would read um, 
a poem that I found a couple of years ago that I really felt spoke to my experience. It's a poem called Shades of Grey by Laurie May. She, um, uh, she's from, and I hope I'm saying this right, um, Mapantui uh, mob, which is out Alice Springs Way. That's what you want to call it. Um, Anyway, so this poem is called um, Shades of Grey. It's not mine, it's Laurie's, um, and she's an amazing writer. You should check out her work. I hope you don't misinterpret my attitude for platitudes, my crude protrusion into your Saturday night, a rude intrusion. But the current preoccupation with my persuasions become an invasion in my situation. And since when did it become okay to question my constitution? Bolt says, I'm just trying to be hip, and Miss Price echoes to his right, you're not real anyway. The the pigmentation in your skin is just not dark enough. I mean, the melanin is just not prevalent, so wait. Does that mean I'm white or just not right? All because stolen babies for generations became possessions of state-organised institutions trying to train the blackout, and then you're just left with me, and you're not left with any colour, and there's no culture here. It's just me. Too activated to be apathetic and too articulated to be ignored, insignificant yet outspoken, one tiny spot on the history of human existence. Truth outweighs fiction in this fictitious stream of non-existence and as I stand before you disappearing, I implore you, don't ignore me. Is my vile misappropriation of the English language just not violent enough? My organised attack on sentences just too intelligent? And if this was dubstep, this would be the drop. (laughs) Arrogance, airing abominations, accentuate alienation, blinded by backwards bigotry cultivated centuries ago, unceremoniously dismantling culture. Black and white identifiable, in between, we just don't exist. The quantifying infractions by government fractions and yet Anglo-Saxon remains unquantifiable. It's undeniable. And just what percentage am I supposed to be that's suitable enough for you to pigeonhole me? Indigeneity is a state of mind and since when did I have to pick a side? You're either A-B-T-S-I, non-A-B, non-T-S-I, A-B-T-S-I and where's the box marked miscellaneous? You know, the one just for people like me, like us and I'm sorry I don't fit neatly into your equation like a lost generation. I'm just another shade of grey. Thank you. Um, okay, so I wrote this about an hour ago because I actually thought this was um, a panel. And then, like, um, Evelyn made a tweet that was like, can't wait for this reading. <laughs> so I was like, oh, shit, I better write something to read because uh, that's a reading. Um, uh, so if it doesn't make any sense, I'm, I'm not really sorry about it because I'm actually a really talented and deadly writer. Um, <laughs> So I started off by writing like this cute little quick poem. It's like a National Young Writers Festival exclusive. Um, and this poem is titled Yeet Yeet and it's about a lot of things. Uh, Roses are red, Pauline Hansen, One Nations, are all dumb dead dogs and can suck me off next station. Uh, ew. <laughs> okay, like... So I guess I have to explain the poem now. Um, 
I, I think the poem's really smart because, like, Roses and Pauline Hansen are, like, introduced species to these countries. Um, uh, the last line actually comes from a video, like, the Suck Me Off Next Station, and um, if you haven't seen it, it went viral in, like, 2011 when I was in high school, and it depicts, like, this black auntie having a go at this white guy on a Brisbane train, and he's like, smile land, suck me off next station. It's quite... I loved it. Anyway, <laughs> the YouTube video has, like, an all-caps, like, clickbait title... Oh, I just... Uh, um, all-caps clickbait title called Black vs. White Racial Fight on Aussie Train. Um, anyway, I, I went to this Catholic private school in the city when it started circulating... And I think for a whole year, many of the boys on the train home would quote this woman to me. And I think that was partly because I was, like, the only Indigenous person at this school, but also because I was, like, obviously queer. So they would, like, taunt me, like, with suck me off next station, as if, like, queer sex could possibly be the worst thing to happen to me. Um, So, like, that was all cute until one day this, like, little white kid... Um, we'll call him like Cameron Allison for the sake, for the for the sake of the story, and because um, that's actually his real name. Um, said he he said, "Suck me off next station on the train in front of one of my cousins," and then this then proceeded to my cousin bashing this white like little <laughs> private school boy on the train for insinuating that I could be gay. So I'm like there thinking like, what an ally like so amazing like oh my god my cousin and then um he turned around and said to me like yeah no one in my family's a fag and then I was like oh (laughs) yeah um anyway my family show love in a weird way I guess um anyway this experience was actually quite formative to me and my writing process now because I'm only interested in paving the way for black queer characters in my writing that are unapologetic in their messiness and loudness and who don't abide by things like on-time culture and respectability politics. Um, Or, you know, how this country and industry have imagined how I'm supposed to look or feel like. And I guess, like, that is why the topic of this talk, Nothing For Us, Without Us, really speaks to me. Um, Because I think we're seeing a lot of culture that's been designed for us, sometimes with us, but it's not actually for us. Uh, I always think about Drake when it comes to this because um, I think he's a bit of a loser despite his successes. Uh, You can tell him I said that. (laughs) Um, I just feel he really requires a lot of energy um, uh, and he paved the way for, like, fragile masculinity. And when you're, like, queer, you, like, don't want to be spending all that energy on men you've never even met. Um, (laughs) He's also, for some reason, dating an 18-year-old, so, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that he's into women emotionally older than him. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, if there is some, like, social capital now within the Western mainstream and in writing... Oh, my God, I just was listening to... I sound so... In the Western mainstream. (laughs) Sorry. In the Western mainstream and in the writing world, that means you could earn a couple extra coins by placing yourself within, like, a feminist, anti-racist or even pro-queer rhetoric. Just means that these optics are learnable, that the commodification of culture and identity is just as prone to be counterfeited. Like, the other day, my little cousin, she's, like, 14, she asked me, have you heard Drake's new song? 
And I was nice for her. And in my head, I'm like, how old do you actually think I am? It's like, but I said no, because I just wanted to see where she, like, she was going with this. Um, anyway, she said, uh, Nokia, you need to listen to his. He's like a really cool feminist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool feminist. Like, what would a chat feminist be? Like a turf? And um, she was like, no, what's a smurf? Like, <laughs> it's just a feminist who's cool. Anyway, um, I guess like the point of that is we're seeing a bunch of like all these like queer black youth fall through the cracks chasing a dream that wasn't actually designed for them in the first place. Like my little cousin thinking Drake's a feminist. And I, I guess it's important that she can dream a world where like men treat her like a human. But it's sad because... His type of feminism is nothing but learnt optics in a brand and it only benefits him. But I think what Drake's presence screams to me is that we're in a desperate need of black and brown men to be unabashedly, unapologetically loud in defence for us and without us there. We're sick of the ones there to defend. Uh, we're sick of being there, the ones there to defend, but we keep doing it anyway because we have love for our community and that will always be stronger than the ignorance that they were taught. Um, I think what upset me the most about this whole thing wasn't the violence of my cousin bashing that guy. Like, TBH, I th he, like, he deserved it. Um, and I, I can't fight. But it was the fact that for straight people in my family, my queerness would always operate outside of my culture. So when I spoke to my cousins during the Yes campaign, they would always say... I thought you said you don't want to talk about politics. And it's like, you know, like that is such a privileged thing for you to conceptualise, like, my experiences as just politics. For it to just be politics to you is, like, incredulous to me. Like, this is my reality. This is something that is actually happening. And you of all people should understand that. Um, and I think a lot of us black followers of brown people who are from conservative families are over the fact that we just have so much pride for where we come from. And when you learn about like colonialism and how it affects our ancestors and our cultures and our displacement and how we're oppressed and all the reasons tied down to that, like you learn to love where you come from with such a passion in a heart. And the most disappointing thing is when that love isn't reciprocated by the people you love and come from the most. So for those of us living on the intersection, uh, we stay up thinking, when are our black and brown men going to defend our women and queers online and in real life? Thank you. Thank you to my Bana Minoc for fucking over my uh, Drake dramatic reading that I had prepared. <laughs> Suppose I'll just do some fucking poems now, shall I? Okay. All right. Um, so uh, I have a problem with middle-class white women writing poems about, like, ghost gums. When it's like, my body is the ghost gum. <laughs> I emerge from the bush and all of the other brown shits. Look at me glowing in the moonlight. Okay, so I wrote this poem for them. 
Um, it's called Fern Up Your Own Gully. <laughs> Deep in the heart of the forest, there's a magical world where wondrous creatures play the day away. And an unusual, so unusual girl dreams of faraway places, dreams of cassette radio, of blonde boys, of defensible monarchies, (laughs) is comfortable with poetic forms of entanglement and likes the smell of eucalypt. When she flew where nobody had flown before, there were huge discoveries. She used her powers. She has powers. She rescued the blonde boy. She rescued the forest. She is crowned in flowering blossom and all other holy things. Deep in the trees... The Ornithorhynchus Antinus sings affectation. That's a platypus. The eyelashed mamaroo opens her pouch. The koala collects his gumnut coins, his sugarbush comb, a fresh change of unmentionables, and they all swag jollily off to the coronation. Just hop in that pouch, unusual girl. Hop in the swag. This whole (laughs) white girls at me. (laughs) This whole home waits in hand painted frames of silk native frocks from Gorman. (laughs) Wear them to your reading. Wear waddles from your ears. It's all metaphor for the beautiful, thin, white woman whose body, whose body slides linenly through the bush. <laughs> the notion that when my straggly brown strips from the tree, that it will be the smooth glow of the ghost gum beckoning. It can't be lyric if you're flora, right? I can't be sovereign if I'm fauna, Right? Unusual girls fuck up their dendrology because they didn't come to bush care. Fern up the gully, girls. Go live those pastel bush dreams. (laughs) While me and my ancestors sit pissed swinging from the veranda couch. Right where you wrote us. Um, uh, the next thing I want to read is about um, this one time how I went to um, a party in Annandale. Um, uh, Robert, it wasn't your party, don't worry. <laughs> I have two friends who live in Annandale, thank you very much. I am what you call bougie. Um, and, uh, and, and basically what happened at this party was I didn't really realise that it was going to be like a, a nice people party, people who iron their shirts party. Um, so I turned up with like a 1.2 litre of little fat lamb and I was like, right, let's go. And they were all like, mm. And then uh, they found out I was Aboriginal and then they were like, oh, 
That's so cool. You, have you heard of AIM? <laughs> like, yes, bitch, I have heard of AIM. So I wrote this poem um, for them. Um, it's called Suburb Paratext. Thank you, thank you. Lately, I've been, been footnoting social space with con and paratext, corner lingering too far from home under late night unlocal neons. I dress in translation to arrive late at the party and sit at the back of the function on the furthest edge lounge, raising my own others with bottom fridge piss. Fields swung violet 16. And comes out a dollar a stand unless you've remembered that one simple trick to make your belly small. Then it's like your liver is a voucher for four cents free a litre that you leave on the dash for the durry run for all that a servo is good for in this town. Lately, I've been playing battleships with the six drinks deeper, unfolding time immemorial against six generations, settled six continents, conquered six figures, earned an encounter mathematically certain, even for such an E-sub-20, something such as this, but a first... Or a second, perhaps. Amidst opinion and permission, a backlit focus group surveys my influence on the revolution inscribed on shirts that I won't wear in these suburbs. Fuck suburbs without servos and from beneath, I am above all this, says this scene's comment section. These nights are held tongue cemeteries of unread article tabs. They aren't the time or the place, but they're full of the wind ones and and whom I waste all of my learned words for this place. The one for whom I give sandstone stories and Twitter trials. Such nights forget that every field I ever fell through was stolen. Forget 16 violent in hand-me-down dreams of dresses I'd never threadbare, of backyards better than any of my generations before. Such nights forget... The choice in nights. A channel, a switch, a drive west told to an occupying state. A scene dark on setting a home. And um, on the subject of homes, I'm going to read a depressing one now. Um, Actually, I'm going to read slightly sort of two depressing ones. Anyway, this is the most depressing one. I'm going to end on like a slightly less depressing note. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I do not know how to build dramatic tension. <laughs> um, this is called Home After the Fire, which I wrote um, as part of the Peril Night of Nights collaboration. I don't know. I went to Melbourne and I, I read in a car park. Anyway, I've read this poem. It's called Home After the Fire. I haven't been smoked since Nan died. It's not the blood or the ceremony that's been bleeding me these months. I've slept in seven houses and I didn't take my hair back to burn. I'm on the way home now with a bag of ashes to unpack. There's a windowsill of pepperberry I lined out to dry. There's blossom seeds I planted here before I left. It's going to take some nights to learn to sleep the scrub again, to gather enough sun slip for my belly to wash my skin back into its scent. I've never lived 
to see a home become a ruin. But I've watched all this in roadside flame, waiting in smoke shrouds for news, for the house, for my dogs, for dad. We return differently when we're made to leave. We ghost hands where furniture hasn't stood in years. Pause in corners. Hold doors and linger as the smoke scent lingers. I try not to move in memorial with my shoes on. And I've never lived nowhere, no other way. So we'll do this again, but in our voices. The first thing is to gather, be it fallen or snapped. It must be green fresh, almost wet. We are not here to disintegrate. We are here to dissolve flesh into air, to shed spirit from body or house or grief, to dance at our most visible and then put everything back in its place. No bodies walk innocent here and nobody's going to take me if I need to go. No smoke detector, no hostile house could keep my answers out if they want me and there is nothing I will not say if I am afraid. But I don't feel like it's time to lose her or the house or the farm or the dam. When I'm ready to mourn, I'll take the highway to the river mouth, go north through the sandstone walls, drive west as the sun sinks the swamp, offer passage for every cousin or crow I might pass on the way. I'll play the radio when I get there and trail the smoke from my skin. Um, the last thing I want to read is potentially the least political thing that I have ever written in my life. Um, and it's called Newtown. And I swear to God, although it was a story written about Newtown, it did not occur to me that, like, calling it New Space Town signified Newtown. I was just like, oh, it's a new town. Like, you know, this woman who I love deeply moved to a new town. Like, that, that's smart. That's a, that's a poem. Um, yeah, so, uh, so I've got a poem about Annandale and a poem about Newtown tonight. Can I be more, like... Yeah, I'm from the western suburbs, but, like, I know a lot of people in the city, right? Like, I've got a lot of friends from the city. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's fine. It's totally fine. I know people. (laughs) Um, In re new place, we facing one another, 
The sound of her is almost between us. A foot of hair grown and lost. The skin of two summers. So much rhythm still crashing from the walls. Never thought day in that stumbled resplendent flight could hinge how it did. Prisms making purpose from shattered shapes, memory graying in light, hover text bubbles so it doesn't need to be said. Didn't want it like this till I need it like this till entangle can unmake leaves in red hair dawn from veranda coal train nights so much it didn't need to be enough forever we count for the benefit of the other we should have called but good evening come in drawing the shade we pull down the sun soft shadows swallow homes we'll never live in backward Still blind. Bugawan, thank you for coming out and thank you so much for my amazing deadly mob for reading tonight. Yamadu Morang, Nathan Sen Shuanadi, Baladu Wadri Gibi, Awabaku Warama Nurambangja. So um, my name is Nathan Sense. I'm from the Mogi clan of the Wiradjuri Nation, which is sort of the Mudgee area, um, where feather people, bird people. And um, before I begin, I'd actually like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded lands of the Awabugu people and the Waramai people. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I'd also like to acknowledge my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders brothers and sisters with us tonight, especially those who spoke. And I'd also like to recognise that no matter what is built upon this land, that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, so, yeah, my name is Nathan Sense. I'm from the Wiradjuri Nation, as I said, and I work in um, museums and galleries, libraries and archives. They make an acronym for it called GLAM, Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. It makes us glamorous. And um, so what I write about is actually my experiences as a Wiradjuri man working in those spaces, working in what is considered cultural history. And what I'm going to actually um, read is actually a blog post I wrote about um, um, uncomfortability in that space. So my blog post is really about how First Nations programs, events, exhibitions in libraries, archives and museums, how can they discuss difficult subject matter that makes makes white settlers, white settlers feel um, confronted or feel like they're experiencing something difficult. So, so um, I'll start it with a quote from one of the Arnie's that I know called Arnie Charmaine Paper Talk Green. She's a great poet. Um, but recently when I was talking to her, she was talking about her poems and how they make people feel uncomfortable. And she's, she basically told someone that asked her a question about that, like, 
you're making me feel uncomfortable. And she goes, I can't own your own comfortability. So I thought that's the best way to sort of start. And that was actually the antithesis of my, like, what I wrote about. Because it all started because several months ago, I asked fellow museum, library, archives folks on Twitter, how do we engage audiences to enter uncomfortable spaces, especially relating to First Nations people and the impact of ongoing invasion? I asked this because recently I was involved in a museum program for um, university health students where we discussed... um, the stolen generations, intergenerational trauma and how that affects health statistics. And after the program, many of the students anonymously commented on their feedback form that they felt that they were being reprimanded or made to feel bad for being white. And I found this to be a very odd response um, discussed because what we were all doing was just discussing a reality that affects many, many of my First Nations brothers and sisters, but they chose to disengage because it made them feel uncomfortable. And this made me worry that White fragility will always get in the way of settlers engaging with programs that challenge colonial structures that benefit them. This made me worry that white fragility is more of concern to people than the truth. I previously experienced this when I was asked by the place I work, the Australian Museum, to write something about James Cook. Um, I wrote that... um, I thought I was being really nice when I wrote this too. I, I wrote that he represents to many First Nations people the start of invasion and colonisation. It was later changed to that he represents the start of the colonial encounter to many First Nations people. I felt this language was soft and dishonest, but I can understand why it was chosen, and this was out of fear of potential backlash caused by white fragility. Nevertheless, it was concerning that white feelings were privileged over First Nations oppression. Furthermore, what are the applications what, are the, what does this mean for us working in libraries, archives and museums trying to ensure that the historically suppressed, the historically marginalised voices are part of um, the history that we're creating now, the history that we're telling now by these institutions if we're fearing white fragility? In regards to First Nations people, how our culture, our history, our communities have been represented in libraries, archives and museums have, have historically been governed by settlers, particularly settler men, white settler men. And because of this, um, we have been represented through a colonial lens which reflects the values and beliefs of mainstream settler society. But thanks to the tireless work of First Nations people in these spaces before me and the many allies that have worked um, tirelessly to change, and this continues to change, and I'd like to state here that um, the stuff on my blog is actually made possible by many people in this space before me. Um, I always believe that whatever I'm doing, I'm not the first person to say the things I'm doing. I'm not the last person to say the things I'm doing. I'm just the person saying them right now. And there's many, any, there's many uncles and aunties that said these things before me that actually helped me be able to say what I'm able to say today. Um, but yeah, we're trying to change these spaces. But we're still just... Um, if we're going to be fearful of white settler responses, then whatever we do as museums and galleries, even though we claim we're not being governed by them, we still are being governed by them if we're fearing what they're going to react to. Um, be more positive. Of course, like, you know, tone policing is not new, but I've heard many times working at the museum, if First Nations people were just more inviting, less confronting with their stories, then people, white settlers, would be more willing to engage with them. I think this is flawed because this is flawed because it puts the onus on us. It puts the responsibility on us, First Nations people. Instead of asking why are you making me uncomfortable, settlers should ask why do I feel uncomfortable when engaging with First Nations stories and histories. 
Additionally, when these manifestations of our cultures and histories focus on the positive, it can still threaten white fragility. For instance, this year at the um, Commonwealth Games, the, um, the, all the different cultural practitioners, the different communities that got involved, um, besides you know, Camp Freedom, they were, they were basically just sharing their culture. They were being very positive. It's still got a reaction of Alan Jones, Pauline Hanson. So basically, we still affect white fragility just by disrupting our own invisibility. And this also asks, like, whose discomfort are we talking about? Um, all this can imply that white settlers are the intended audience for First Nations output from libraries, archives, and museums. For instance, I was recently talking to a white settler curator about how it's becoming more common for exhibitions to include the relevant First Nations languages. And she said that she was worried that um, this could be confusing for exhibition visitors. Undoubtedly, she was talking about white settlers when she was saying visitors. And um, my reaction was like, not everything's about you. But, <laughs> but, but to be fair to her, exhibitions have been, in many cases, about her, as her epistemology, her experiences, her language are considered the default in mainstream settler society, therefore are reflected in a majority of exhibitions. And... Because of this, she is more concerned of potential settler discomfort caused by the inclusion of First Nations language than the, um, you know, than the actual suppression of First Nations languages. In addition to this, um, discussion about discomfort in libraries, archives, and um, museums rarely touch on First Nations discomfort that could stem from keeping our cultural heritage in very colonial buildings and describing and classifying our cultural heritage in ways that are alien to our worldviews. The implementation of confusing access guidelines and the, the celebration of libraries, archives, and museums of many people that we deem to be violent, oppressive um, colonizers. So that's why I actually asked several months ago on Twitter, like, how do we get people to engage in space? Because I'm actually generally interested. There's many people that are working in that sort of space, working in exhibitions that have had to deal with this subject. And it just makes me worry because if white fragility gets in the way or is it prioritized, how do we, um, how do we get audiences, especially white cell owners, to understand that their um, discomfort is potentially, you know, temporary, but our oppression is not? Like, that's where... Thank you. Mandanguru, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, so I will finish up with a couple of poems for everybody. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, so the first poem. Um, so I grew up in Newcastle, um, in Toronto, which is like Macquarie Way. Um, and I wrote this poem about growing up here. Um, it's called I Grew Up, surprisingly. Um, I grew up on suburban streets, teetering on the edge of a city with bright beaches and sun-kissed sand. I'd walk hand in hand down the concrete path, dangling off my father's arm, getting strange looks from folks still not used to seeing a black man walk with his white wife, their daughter bouncing with a shiny new book in one hand and a pencil in the other, always asking questions and searching 
her answers. Why'd she call me that? And what's it? It's a statistic. Why'd he call you a gollywog? Ain't that a biscuit? <laughs> I grew up on the lightest side of brown, able to easily blend in with the white kids because my town is a town where being brown is synonymous for being stupid. Where my teacher seemed surprised I could read, that I had half a brain to succeed. She gave me books and extra work, challenging me in a way no one had before. Most of the books I'd already read, to kill a mocking bird, Chinese Cinderella, I didn't have have the heart to tell her. I read them again, skipping to my favourite parts. I learned much to do about nothing off by heart. I wrote fan fiction in the margins of my math book next to Death Note fan art. I grew up in the local public library, escaping there when home was too much to bear. Mum would tell me to study, to get good grades and not become like her, not to sit on the couch in a tiny backward town that judged me because my dad sat on the wrong side of the bench one too many times for crimes that stained the family's name. I wanted to change the public's opinion. I, I'd pick up a pen and write until the muscles in my hand grew tight. I wanted to change the world, to be that girl again, bouncing down the street with a shiny new book in one hand and a pencil in the other. Um, so earlier this year, I won the Nakata Profi Prize. Thank you. Um, and the winning poem was called Haunted House, and it's in three parts, and I shall read it to you now. One. When my cousin told me her house was haunted, I replied, of course it is. How can it not be when they built buildings on the bones of the broken, used our skeletons to frame the walls of her Lego house? She told me to get over it, chose to ignore the screams, the taste of blood, the smell of rot. Two, my cousin told me her house was haunted by a little old English lady with purple hair and no children. It couldn't be anyone else. Her psychic friend told her so. I reminded her that our grandfather was shot dead just down the road and how the elders said there was a massacre site not far from the creek where as children we swung on a rope swing that hung loose around the branch of an old gum like a noose. She told me to shut up. Those things didn't happen 
anymore, and the old lady's name was Ethel. (laughs) Three. My cousin didn't like my reply when she told me her house was haunted, so she asked for a second opinion. She had her priest come over with holy water and exercise her house, had her psychic friend do another round. That night, resting peacefully in her no longer haunted house, my cousin dreamed of the Australia that the history books taught her. She forgot the stories we were told under glistening stars with dark shadows bouncing off the light of the campfire. Stories of death, of stolen babies, of blood-soaked land. She forgot that all land on this land since the landing of the white man has been haunted. Um, This poem is called Journey Back. I don't know how to walk back into language the same way I walk back onto country, but I try anyway. I step barefoot over flat, dry plains. Spirits circulate the earth, singing songs of strength and resilience in a familiar language I do not know. I strip the confines of the English narrative, bathe myself in the words of ancestors. I peel away my flesh, stretch it out, use it as parchment, write disjointed sentences with pointed toes dipped in blood. I dissemble my rib cage and carve words into the bone. I curl the letters around my withered tongue until they crack and break my teeth. I write until I am unrecognisable. When I place my ribs back into place, I feel the words embedded in the bone so close to my beating heart. I slide back into my skin. The words of ancestors wrap around me, warming my skeleton. My flesh is loose, stretched far too thin, but it feels less foreign than it did before. I sew my body back together, admiring the scars left behind, each stitch soaking into my skin. I pick myself up and stand on wobbly legs. I teach myself to walk again, to speak, to cry. Spirits circulate the earth, singing songs of strength and resilience in a familial language I do not know. They give me a courage I didn't know I possessed, pushing me forth into the world reborn. I do not know how to walk back in, 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 into language the same way I walk back on to country, but I'm learning. Um, So I'm going to end with a fun poem called, Damn it, Jim, I don't know what I am. (laughs) 
this was created with the help of predictive text. In Sydney on Saturdays, the void gazes back. I have no idea what I'm doing. I drank seven beers and honestly, I'm so happy that you're so confident in your wrong opinions. (laughs) The void is too powerful for a writer. I'm not going to be a writer when you get here. We can catch up on my way home. My phone and I don't have much more than a week. (laughs) Message you tomorrow. I'm doing okay. I just wanted to let you know I have no idea what I'm doing. Thank you. Um, thank you. One more round of applause or, or for the um, talented writers that got up and spoke today. Amazing. Enjoy the rest of the night, guys. Thank you. If you enjoyed that session of the National Young Writers Festival, it happens every year on Labor Day weekend, so around September 27-28, I think it is, in Newcastle. For more information, go to their website, www.youngwritersfestival.org, and you'll be able to find everything you need to know about the festival itself, get tickets, find out about the artists. We found it to be one of the most dynamic, inclusive and fun festivals we attended last year and um, we can't wait to be doing it again this year and this year we're even going to be setting up the National Young Writers Festival podcast feed all of its very own so keep an eye out for that as well but in the meantime if you want to keep hearing the sessions from the 2018 festival and there are some really great ones coming up then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to Rights for Festivals or go to www.rightsforwomen.com and that's the website where you'll find all of the Rights for Festivals episodes including the Feminist Writers Festival, Mudgy Writers Festival, Story Fest and of course the National Young Writers Festival and there will be many more to come throughout this year as well. Hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to like our Facebook page and follow along at Rights for Festivals. And um, we'll hit you up again soon with another fantastic and playful episode from the National Young Writers Festival. This podcast episode was recorded, produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.